Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie. I have a return guest. I have Michaela Wade. She's co-founder of the Family Law Assistance, and she was last on my podcast, Season 2, Episode 116, and Season 3, Episode 175. The last time she was on, we talked about, will the court see through the lies and why we should work together? And today, we thought we would discuss issues regarding the Hague Conference. So I welcome you back to Slam the Gavel. Michaela, how are you doing? I am cold. Yes. Hence the sweater dress. Uh, Like I said before, I'm not leaving anything to chance. We've just had snow where we are. So that's just coming down thick and fast. Oh, wow. uh, yeah. So, uh, but always warm in your company, Marianne. Oh, thank you. Same here. Same here. <laughs> now, with this Hague conference, there's a lot of confusion with people. Some people understand it, uh, but there are some glitches to it. And what what have you run into with these, some of your cases? So first of all, just to back up a little bit, um, I took a bit of a one of my favorite things to specialize in actually is international child abduction. And I think that's mainly because I grew up as an expat. I was that expat girl. I actually grew up in the Middle East. I, I started school education actually in an American schooling system. And believe it or not, I remember when I came back to the UK, I had the strongest American accent ever. And um, my mother put me into elocution lessons and hence what you've kind of got today in my accent. But um, I realised that the world is quite a small place and um, it doesn't matter where you are in the globe. The principles still apply at humans to humans. You know, people are doing things internationally. So I have a real hankering for international child abduction and Part of the challenges that I see uh, this side of the pond for for sure is where a parent abducts a child to a non-Hague convention country, Mm -hmm. that can be really, really difficult to orchestrate internationally and the agencies internationally to have that child returned I mean there's a whole bunch of stuff that comes honestly I think that's probably why I like it because one of the courts we've got so we have the Royal Courts of Justice it looks like Hogwarts it's it's one of the courts you see often on the television Um, but that particular court will have something called tip staff and tip staff are kind of like the high court police and they have the power and the authority to issue uh, port alerts um, in ferries, um, across airports, all a bit James Bond-like. Mm-hmm. Um, they can seize passports. I have had that happen. I've had uh, high court police in, uh, raiding parents' homes at two in the morning and seizing their passports. So, you know, it's quite draconian stuff. Mm. And one of the things that, I mean, it's difficult when agencies, I mean, we've only got to think about our own governments. Yeah, Department A doesn't speak to Department B. We just think about the family courts in the beginning. And it's like most things that are government run, they tend to be a bit slow and a bit clunky. But very often, 
somebody that's their only lifeline so you're right I think you know when you're dealing with that that's locally <laughs> you know there's inconsistencies there's clunkiness there's department A not speaking to department B in our own country in our own locale you magnify that times the globe mm-hmm. and naturally there are going to be inconsistencies they're going to be be agencies that don't play ball and that's where people who have signed up to the Hague Convention there are lots of countries out there that haven't signed up to the Hague Convention I I recently had a case where um, the child was being abducted to China Mm. non-Hague Convention and let me tell you that was horrendous to return the child back to the, the United Kingdom so yeah you're absolutely right Marianne there are inconsistencies there are for want of a better term there are cock-ups um and here's the thing right I I am never really a a fan of conspiracy theories because I think if there was such a thing as a conspiracy theory that would infer that at least somebody's got a plan at least somebody knows what's going on but the reality is quite often nobody's got a plan and it's more often cock-up than conspiracy. So I totally, <laughs> you are preaching to the choir when I say, yeah, I totally acknowledge there are inconsistencies, there are cock-ups, and there are gaping holes where, and not just the piece of legislation itself, very often if you're taking that Hague conference and what goes on, that in its own looks quite sensible. It's a bit mm. like the laws you have. If you look at it on its own, actually, that's quite a decent piece of legislation. It's the interpretation of it that gets watered down. I mean, hey, that's why we got courts, right? Mm-hmm. It's the interpretation of it. It's um, the orchestrating, usually, of it, especially when we're talking about things like international child abduction, especially when we're talking about when we sign up to the um, conventions such as the Hague. And then there are other ones, but obviously we're just talking about the Hague. It's also the most well-known as well. Uh, Most popular countries have set up. And then, you know, you've got their own people in their local jurisdiction. I had a child that was abducted to Spain, Spain, that's that's like literally a hop, skip and jump from here in the UK. Mm -hmm. But getting the child back from a remote part of Spain, yes, it was signed up to the Hague Convention. Yes, the government agencies play ball, but Spain is quite a big country, you know, Mm -hmm. there's quite a lot of mountains there. So to actually locate the child and locate the parent who had abducted the child took some serious uh, serious negotiating and time one of the greatest enemies i think we have at all in family courts um whether it's national or international is time time often is our biggest currency when we're talking about um these matters and it's not necessarily our time because what constitutes an emergency in our time doesn't always translate to what constitutes an emergency for the courts or for the governments or heck even the international government so mm-hmm. that time lapse is something that people can usually ill afford especially when a child gets abducted they mean a, a sort of like the missing persons like the longer it goes on the harder it is to orchestrate and get that child back so yeah huge huge inconsistencies and it's the bane of my life but also the most exciting part of what I do mm-hmm. you know have you ever um ran across a situation where a parent um maybe should abduct a kid to the other country (laughs) you know i mean here's the thing i think when we're talking about so you know let's be real abduction where we we're here certainly it's illegal so unless you've got um 
unless you've got the uh, agreement of everybody that holds what we call parental responsibility for a child, mm -hmm. then it's illegal. Or you have the permission from the court, it's illegal. It's also illegal to retain a child in a foreign country without the consent of people, of all holders with parental responsibility or without the permission of the court. So first of all, it's illegal. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why, you know, you have international child abduction and that's why there are laws there. And that's why things like um, the Hague Convention exists. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a difference between um, having a child abducted to a different country and slash or um, returning a child to a country perhaps of origin. So I had a case once where, um, the mother of the child wanted to relocate herself and the children to Norway, but she was Norwegian. She had a family support um, network in Norway. She had a job in Norway. She grew up in Norway. So it, it on the face of it, it would seem that actually mm -hmm. that seems quite a natural thing for you know afford a child the opportunity to grow up and show them and experience part of their heritage the child was dual heritage actually in the end her application got turned down because mm -hmm. it turned out that she it was shown that she was alienating the children against the father so her motives her motives for relocating for her back to Norway was um had malicious intent behind it so yeah I think there's there's so many facets to this um Mm -hmm. the courts will look at all sorts of, and I, I say this not just in the UK but the principles that I've seen internationally I mean you know I, I travel for work I mean I was in Dubai um, Morocco and I was in Holland I mean I traveled quite extensively last year and it doesn't matter where I am in the globe those principles um, still exist you know when people are looking to relocate to a different country slash different continent mm -hmm. of course you know questions like motives um what plans has that parent got what relationship has a child got with not just the person relocating but the non-relocating parent mm -hmm. and then how to fight that in court and i think that's increasingly more difficult when you when the country in question is not part of the Hague Convention. So, for example, earlier on in the year, I had somebody who wanted to relocate to Dubai. Hey, I grew up in the Middle East, so this was kind of my bag, right? Yeah. Um, but even so, no matter how sort of civilised and no matter how, you know, corporate and very much into this world, Dubai and the Ar United Arab Emirates are, it's still not part of the Hague Convention. So mm -hmm. if facilitating the contact between father and child if it was to go wrong that's a lot of trust it's a lot of trust to, to put on one parent because mm -hmm. effectively the court's saying do you trust this parent enough to be able to promote the relationship between child and the non-relocating parent mm -hmm. now you and I both know by the time people go to court trust is like gone it's non-existent communication mm -hmm. goes trust and communication usually one of the first things that that go out the water so if you're relocating to a non-Hague Convention country, for everybody in question, that's a massive gamble. It is. Um, you know, um, like you said, uh, you got like checkpoints if someone were tr to try to leave the country. Uh, we have that too, but sometimes pe sometimes people get through those somehow. Right. Yeah. And the timing's that. That's the important. I'm talking about the timing. You know, so when we put out portalettes, when you've got the ferries, um, 
the airport checks and it, a bit bond like you know as the people are coming through and you've got you know the flashing and noting people of interest that you're right that does rely on a timing thing as well because how quick is it and you know how quick can that port alert get out how far ahead is that parent planning have they already slipped through the border you're right it's 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 very very tricky now there are two uh countries that uh, do not acknowledge the Hague, which one, I think one is Japan, the other one, um, I want to say Israel, but I know I'm wrong. I can't think of the other one. Yeah, I can't think of the other one either. But there's a, there's a, there's Lebanon, a, I think it's, you, all right, okay. So there's, there's a few that um, not only don't acknowledge it, I mean, you've raised two, but I can think of others that um, are, mm-hmm. uh, aren't part of the Hague Convention. And mm. yeah, but you're right. Um, it, depending on, where you are in the world um like some of them i know they have to go through a rigorous process to be part of the Hague convention in the beginning mm-hmm. um and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna sort of sit here and judge to as to what extent they are or they're not but i do think that uh different countries are going to have very different attitudes and not just the governments themselves but it, locally as well i mean you might have like um you raised japan japan on the face of it actually is very pro uh hay convention on the face of it but in reality isn't mm-hmm. they don't play ball and in fact the way um that they often deal with um disputes is it's very much about who you know and slash or let's not also forget money talks and people mumble and in some of these countries you know it's not you know they're not afforded the sort of access to material and justice that perhaps is afforded here in the UK and perhaps in the US Mm. you know I know that um, for example Italy it is very much about who you know I just think of an example um, and I mean, I always say, um, no matter what my fees are, that the average cost of a solicitor's is like a good twice of what I charge. Um, Mm -hmm. That's a national average. But there are some countries where the national average would be four or five times the rate that I charge. And that means that access to justice in any form is reserved only for the elite. Mm is reserved only for people who can genuinely afford it. I mean, um, here there's a wide range of solicitors who have ranging costs, but in some countries that's just simply not the case. So, and you might need that legal help because there might be a language barrier. Right. Uh, uh, there might be certain different procedures, different forms to fill in. Um, I know, for example, in India, some of their forms are very, well, they're very wordy. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I they will use 10 words when really, honestly, two would do. So it's very, um, it's be- it's overly eloquent. Um, and I, and I, I actually, because I'm such a nerd like that, I actually understand why they do that. That actually comes from quite a lot of old English, very, a lot of old English. But if you were to read some of like Indian documents, which are translated into English, it becomes, the language is extremely flowery. It's littered with mm. Latin maxims. Whereas, you know, I don't know what it's like in the US, but certainly here in the UK, they've tried to, make contracts and legal words less jargony Mm -hmm. you know um 
but not all of that's the case. Um, some of it's very, very different. And the procedure and the court setup is very different in some of these countries. So if a parent wants to get their child back using the, the Hague, um, so th- they've got to hire attorneys over in that country as well. Right. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And, and I suppose that there's, there's, there's pros and cons to it. So being part of the Hague Convention means, in theory, that government agencies are supposed to liaise with each other. They're supposed to um, uh, set portalists. They're supposed to communicate. But that's still difficult. And again, the timing. And then if your child is abducted over there, um, you may very well have to expedite the matter by um, engaging um, somebody that's in their country. I had somebody that was actually um, taken to Australia and it was so costly that my guy said, you know, I fortunately didn't come to it, didn't come to it. it the matter got resolved beforehand, but you know, he was there saying, I'm just literally going to fly you over to Australia because A, you know my case and B, it's just going to be a lot easier and cheaper to fly me to Australia on mm-hmm. a 24-hour flight to sort to sort that stuff out so yeah and that's an english-speaking country you know right right. you know how long were you there uh i'm sure you were pulled into a courtroom and all this began so funny enough actually i so i i dealt with his case when it was in london um at the royal courts of justice so i dealt with the international matter and weirdly so his child was taken to china not part of the Hague Convention, so that was an issue. Um, but she got leave to remove and then um, moved on to Australia. He's actually Australian himself. So, uh, yeah, so by the time the child visited him in Australia, she, the child didn't want to be returned back to China. So she was claiming that he'd abducted the child and he's like, well, no, she doesn't want to go. So it's all, it's never, it's never black and white. It's always shades of grey. So she was making an application in Australia to get the child returned. And he was like, well, I need to be making an application to keep the child in Australia. He's Australian. He's got Australian family. And at one point it got so bad that he said, you know what, I'm just going to fly you out to Australia just to help sort this out because you're a heck of a lot cheaper. The flight alone would be cheaper than hiring a lawyer over there. So it's definitely something for people to consider. Yeah, oh, I can't imagine. Uh, and even finding uh, a solicitor that is a adept in this Hague um, convention and the ins and outs of that. Right, right. So, I mean, I had one a case recently, and just to give you an i just to give you an idea of cost here, um, I the case I was talking about uh, the case to United Arab Emirates, not part of the Hague Convention. So we had to get what's called a mirror order. And lots of people, by the way, who are relocating to different countries often need that, something called a mirror order. But of course, depending on what country you're in, the judges in that country may not be aware of the laws and the procedure in the other country. Mm. So how likely is it that a mirror order can be made? Now, whether your child is abducted or whether, again, within the Hague Convention, whether that you're relocating to a different country, it's usually advisable to have something called a mirror order so that you, if you need to, you can, without too much headache, enforce that order in the country they're moving to, as well as enforce it back in. So you kind of got that same order in both countries. Mm-hmm. You've got a 
each country then to sort of belts and braces it. But to give you an idea, we, she had to employ uh, a lawyer in the United Arab Emirates that for a letter and a consultation, because obviously they need a consultation, and to report back to the court, to educate the court, you were looking at three-figure sum. Oh, no. Ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. So I think when, when we're talking about either it's childhood abduction or whether people are relocating to any country mm-hmm. that's in um, in that Hague Convention, it's it's costly. It can be costly. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be slow and frustrating. And you also think about, never mind the emotional and mental toll that it takes on a parent. Mm-hmm. They don't know. I mean, to... When your child is taken away on the other side of the globe, trust me, that feeling of, oh, it's a small world after all, <laughs> doesn't feel small. They do feel like they're at the ends of the earth. You know, very often um, parents don't have a plan. Very often it's not always well thought through. They've not sought the appropriate channels. They've not gone through court and asked the court's permission to go. They've not sought, perhaps, in some, in some instances, they've not sought the permission of anybody with parental responsibility to go in the beginning they've just decided i don't know i fancy doing a yoga retreat in bali we're going mm-hmm. and that's kind of been it so i've seen all sorts i've dealt with all kinds of countries i've dealt with hague convention countries and non-hague convention countries and in my experience um typically the execution of it doesn't overly matter where you are in the globe i mean I'd, i had a case for example where a child was looking to be taken to brazil well i'm not sure whether you knew this but i mean brazil has got massive high ab- abduction rates mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you know the safety <laughs> of that um, the medical system in in brazil uh, for expats not great mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not great so you know i, I think it, it's very multi-dimensional when we're talking about this so as it happened the prep work and always by the way I say this it doesn't matter what case we're dealing with the magic is always in the prep and I always say well you know well Hollywood's got a lot to answer for you know because if I was to do a documentary or something about what actually goes on in family court it would be really boring and me sitting around in a consult room for hours drinking terrible coffee right it's not an episode of Suits for sure um but I think um, that mental and physical, emotional toil on parents is is absolutely massive. Um, and I think when we're talking about enforcing any of this, mm-hmm. it can be really, really difficult. And very often I, I sort of advocate my guys to do a lot of their own sleuthing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's lots that one can find on the Internet, thankfully, because I remember a day when the Internet, which makes me sound like a dinosaur, I know, but no. I remember. <laughs> I remember days when like the internet wasn't quite so up and atom like it is today um but you can find out quite a bit I mean thanks to the virtue of social media like I mean one child was found because she had a TikTok account mm. and posted something on on TikTok and they managed to locate where mm. the child and the parent had gone to just from the surroundings of, of TikTok amazing right. amazing you know, so these parents have it, I guess, in, in their minds that um, they feel they should have the child and just go to another country. Yes, yeah, sometimes. 
And uh, what I've heard of, you know, Japan is that the courts treat it like it's a family matter. If if you go to try to get the the kid back, it's it, it, they just they don't care what the previous court ordered, whether it be the UK or the United States. They the judges just brush it off as if it's a family matter, and and that parents out of luck. They're not going to get their kid back. It's whoever abducts the kid first. Right. Possession is nine-tenths of the law, and that's absolutely true. And by the way, Japan isn't the only country that does that. I know quite a lot of countries that act like that. Um, yeah, in a word, yeah, uh, like I said. And that's a, that is a perfect example of how um, if you don't have a mirror order, and who goes around asking mirror orders, especially in the beginning when there's a flurry of activity, especially in the beginning where, um, a, a parent may not know that their child has been taken abroad you know maybe they've just found out um, off the internet that they're going or maybe it's just a flippant comment that their child made you know that made mm -hmm. alarm bells ring so it's not always it's not always a thought through plan and let's not also forget that that parent who's just received that news is often in shock and that shock prevents it's like, it's like the rabbit caught in headlights mm -hmm. you know? that they're a bit paralyzed they don't quite know where to go they don't quite know where to go for advice or for help so you know that whilst they're still getting to terms of what's going on and working out where to go where to get that advice well that's fine but you've already created that distance so the first thing people don't think of oh my gosh my child has been abducted do you know what i need i need a mirror order said nobody ever Mm -hmm. So but without having that mirror order, you're absolutely right. You find very often um, that and in fact, that case in Australia that didn't have a mirror order. And we were dealing with the family courts, despite mm -hmm. the fact that actually it's international child abduction, despite the fact that it's illegal, but despite the fact that there are laws, not just like everywhere about mm -hmm. international child abduction, child abduction is illegal. And yet and yet you're absolutely right. This the number of times that I end up seeing so many parents end up in the family courts and what they end up doing and that's again that snowballs into the cost as well because you're not dealing with the police necessarily mm -hmm. what you'll find is that you know department a doesn't speak to department b and you end up in a family court trying to fight the family court with a solicitor who doesn't speak it becomes a roller coaster and a domino effect as well so um, i do absolutely feel i think my biggest tip i guess always was be vigilant in reality I always say that nobody knows your ex quite like you do. And trust your gut. I get lots of people, and I have to say I fight the flip side of this as well. I have people that say, oh, they're going to be um, internationally abducting my child. Well, no, they're not. They're just going to Spain for a holiday. You know, it's mm -hmm. a two-week all-inclusive vacation. Get over yourself, okay? Um, but that, that sort of paranoia. But deep down, people will know. And I, when I speak to clients, I can tell, I can tell, I've been doing this for such a long time, I can tell whether or not, no, they really are fearful that mm -hmm. their child is going to go. And it was, it's often something external. It's something that is not just within themselves, thinking, oh, my gosh, well, they've got family in Iraq. I think they're going to go back to Iraq. Um, it, it's, it's often more than that. It's, it's often something they've seen online. Because people post the most bizarre stuff online. People mm -hmm. can't keep this from shtum, right. you know. 
you know they post away on social media so the gift of social media that is or it's something that the child has said inadvertently either inadvertently or on purpose like sometimes they've come out oh mummy or mummy or daddy is selling the house and mm-hmm. we've, I've gone to see my new school in America or whatever it is mm-hmm. um so there's often something else that the alarm bells start ringing mm-hmm. so the I'll always say be hyper vigilant about that um the trick is to stop it from happening in the beginning. Right. So wherever you are in the UK, if you've got that, oh, yeah. I would rather make the application look a pillock in front of a judge, mm-hmm. but at least the child's not gone anywhere. Because the minute they do, that's when the problems, I think, really start. That's when you have to rely mm-hmm. on gov- international government agencies talking together. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't always work. And it's expensive. You know, when parents have this gut feeling, I won't keep you too long, but when they have this gut feeling and they're saying, you know, um, their ex is saying, you know, we're, your home is in this other country and grandma and grandpa are waiting for you and this is your home and, and you know, say your your mother or father doesn't really love you anymore anyway, so we're going to go there. And so they, they come to you and say you go before a judge. Does this judge, you know, take this seriously? They do. Um, so I will always be devil's advocate. If I'm assisting those parents or that parent who wants to go back and the home and granny's waiting for you and, you know, this is this is where you're from, this is your roots, I am always the sanity check. I will ask those awkward questions because if I'm not, a judge will. So I'll always be, I'll do, I'll usually do a deep dive, find out what's the real reason of going. What was contact like beforehand? Do they have a history of not keeping contact arrangements? You know, uh, is this parent that's going, going to frustrate contact? How have they thought about how contact is going to happen? In a very famous case, a, a social worker quite eloquently put it, you can't hug Skype. I'll tell you, give you an idea about how long ago that case was. But, you know, just by decide, you know, have they got that plan? What schools are they going to? Where are they going to live? What about the support network? How about how are they going to facilitate contact with the other parent? Who's going to pay for that? How Mm -hmm. often is that going to happen? What contact arrangements were already there? Because if a child has already got a, a kind of shared parenting agreement already, you know, is that detriment? Are they going to severely lose that detriment just because they're going to sail off into the sunset? So there's so many box ticking exercises. I'll always say, depending on who you are, if you're the applicant and you're the relocating parent, it helps if you've got siblings. It helps if you've got a plan. I cannot emphasize that enough. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it helps if you've promoted the contact with the with with the other parent. If you're the non-relocating parent, it helps if you've got a shared arrangement because you've got time on your side. Time's the biggest currency in family court. Time with the children, time in the family court, having that status quo. The status quo, no matter where you are in the universe, the status quo is the most difficult thing to overturn. So -hmm. if you have a shared care arrangement, how is that going to work? How receptive are they to having that work? How committed are parents? Because you think about how difficult it is to maintain um, arrangements when parents are separated in the same country. Imagine what it's like 
when you've got parents on the opposite side of the globe, who's going to facilitate that? And it doesn't always work. I had a case where uh, one party was in New Zealand and, you know, they, there was a whole ferrying system put in place to take the then very young children from door to door, including chaperone services and nanny services and chaperone services on the plane to get from A to B. So there's a lot more orchestrating that goes on in facilitating contact internationally. Mm-hmm. And these parents that feel they can t- just take the child away from the other parent, mm-hmm. um, have you found anything wrong with their psychological evaluations? It depends, actually. So one of the things I, I so funny enough, the case that I had in Australia, um, the 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 mother that was relocating had perpetrated domestic abuse against the father. Mm. And it's, now this case was quite a while ago, I admit, but I tell you this, had it been the other way around, had it been him that was perpetrating domestic abuse against her, it would have been a totally different outcome. But I mean, part of the exhibits, for example, when I had, I don't mean sort of putting a trigger warning right now, was that she'd bitten a chunk out of his back um, and had stabbed him. I mean, it was quite horrific. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, with all of that, the judge wasn't particularly interested, which I found at the time pretty horrifying when you think of the level oh. of abuse. So, you know, I mean, it's it's interesting. I do a whole sort of, I mean, I, I, I do a lot of TikToks myself. And mm-hmm. one of the things I talk about quite a lot is actually um, mental health issues. And they often go undiagnosed often go diagnosed so do I think that there are um, parents out there that have unilaterally taken the decision to remove a child that have mental problems I'm not sure I'm not sure is the honest answer to that unless it gets diagnosed I can't make that diagnosis I can't sit there and just I mean it's very fashionable as well these days I think to label somebody so like it's very fashionable to label someone as a narcissist and I'm always very very careful when people are, are contacting me and they say, well, my ex is a narcissist. And I'm like, are they? Because there's a difference between being a diagnosed narcissistic personality disorder and let's be real, they're just being an idiot. They're yeah. not just they're <laughs> right. a deeply pleasant person, which is often that happens, especially when people separate. So, you know, I'm very cautious not to be the one that says, God, that's a really nuts thing to do. I mean, it's completely unprofessional of me anyway. So I think the key thing here is to have it diagnosed. And by the way, you know, if if people genuinely have mental health, they often there's often a trail. You know, they, it's often starting. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't come out of a vacuum. So if if people and parents do have uh, mental health issues, they often have a history of it. It might have been starting out as anxiety and depression. It may go through to something else. And my, mm-hmm. I have a case at the moment where um, the parent has had a long, long history of mental health issues. It started with anxiety and depression and ended up with psychosis. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, there's a there's always a there's always a trail of people who have mental um, disorders. Mm-hmm. Now, going back to my first question, when I said, do you think that, uh, you know, some parents think it's, you know, um, th- that they're going and it's okay. <clears throat> but have you found that there are their friends or relatives are chirping in their ear to leave and it's okay to leave? Right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Especially the primary carers. So primary carers often tend to be mum. Mm-hmm. That's just the, the nature of it. Um, yeah, everyone's got an opinion, right? you know, friends, family, and the internet. Let's not also forget the internet, okay? Because there's so many groups out there that people put what they reckon 
what you want to do is dot 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 I wouldn't put up with that as everyone's got an opinion and especially so I always fun fact um I often kick family members out of out of my consult room mm-hmm. because you know, whilst they're there and they've got a vested interest because either they're their grandchildren or they're their best mates or whatever it might be, that is not helping my clients. Mm-hmm. So, and, and they'll chirp in, in there, yeah. what you want to do with this? You know, I would be doing this. I spoke to my aunt Gerald's second cousin twice removed and he suggested you do this. That doesn't help. No. That doesn't help. They're not the courts. Yes, there always is a posse of people around them that will have an opinion. And I don't limit that actually to just friends and family because birds of a feather flock together. Mm-hmm. And I find that they'll probably join internet forums and that whole confirmation bias. They're going to tell, they're not there. But it's interesting. I've removed myself from a whole load of um, um, groups online because I very often feel that these the parents who go on there, they're not actually, usually, not usually seeking advice. What they're seeking is validation. Mm-hmm. And I and I don't think, or, or they're very angry. They, they're not, they just want to whinge, you know, they don't, mm-hmm. they don't actually want to resolve the matter. So yeah, people's heads are turned by friends and family who think it's okay. And they almost have that confirmation bias of that one man upmanship, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I've actually had, I remember having one case, and it was a mum actually. Um, who decided to unilaterally she did want to start a yoga retreat I think it was in Bali something like that mm. but she it, it was just weird her her plans fell apart because actually she had this kind of well I'm mum and you mm. sort of hear the cadence of our men behind that you know and she genuinely believed that but had no plan you know I actually her application probably would have been successful had she had a plan had she thought of but the fact that she had this one man upmanship, actually, that was her uh, Achilles mm. heel because that prevented her from thinking clearly. She just felt that she had this sort of God given right, which was enforced by um, her friends and family and the land of the Internet. <laughs> right, right. Oh, well, I'm, I'm glad we talked and um, I'd like to have you back on again. I'm sure we'll come up with another topic. <laughs> so. Always. Um, I'll put your contact information in the podcast notes from the last time you were on. But uh, uh, don't jump off. Slam the gavels, a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again here in the future with Michaela Wade and other exciting guests. I totally thank you so much for your expertise, Michaela. Thank you. You're welcome.